All right, how are you guys today? We good? I think the very first thing we're going to do is do what? Start off in prayer, amen? Let's pray for the Word of God, and then we'll get right into the Word of God, amen? Because that's why you came, and that's why I came, amen? To hear from the Lord and nothing else. Uh, so, Father in heaven, we come before you. Just thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your son, Father, who is the word, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, who came down to earth, became flesh, and dwelt among us, Father, so he could lead us to salvation. We thank you for your son. Your word to me is precious, Lord. It's not just words on a page, but it truly is the living word when we apply it to our lives. So today, Father, may we apply this message to our lives. May we hear from the Holy Spirit. May my words be few, and I say none. And may your words be many, Lord. So as we study your word, Lord, may the Holy Spirit inside of us, Father, awaken, Lord, and hear your instruction and be obedient to it. So I thank you for this opportunity. I love you and your son. And I pray this in Lord Jesus Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and get into the word. We're going to be in Obadiah today. And we're going to be in Obadiah. So everyone turn there. It's going to be uh, one of your minor prophets. It's going to be after Hosea and Amos, kind of a little bit towards the end of the Old Testament. I mean, about two thirds of the way through. It is hard to find. We're in chapter one because guess what? There is no chapter two. So you're only going to find one book there. And that's also why it's hard to find in the Bible. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about Obadiah before we go ahead and get started. I did name this message don't mistreat or take advantage of people. Don't mistreat or take advantage of people. In the Old Testament, we have the major and we have the minor prophets. We have four major prophets. They're Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Obadiah is one of the 12 minor prophets, and it's actually also the shortest book in the Old Testament. Now, they're not minor prophets because of the subject matter they're talking about. In fact, the subject matter of Obadiah and the minor prophets usually is very major and very prophetic and very heavy. They're basically minor prophets because their books are the shortest. So that's all it is, is the writings being shorter than the major prophets. Lamentations, by the way, was also written by Jeremiah. So you have Jeremiah and Lamentations, the two books. Uh, also, the Obadiah means servant of God. Amen. So in Jewish culture, as you know, a lot of the names represented uh, different, uh, they had meanings, right? A lot of times, unfortunately, we've lost that practice of naming people with meanings, and some of us do. But I say this, we have a label as well. What is it? We're Christians. Amen. So it says here, he's a servant of God. We also as Christians should be servants of God. Amen. And when people see us walk into a room, we should identify as a Christian more than we identify as a camper, a Johnston, a Boozian, a Smith, or whatever it may be. So remember, you're always representing God wherever you go by your label and title that you give yourself, which is a follower of a Christ. That's what Christian means, follower of Christ. So there's 13 men named Obadiah in the Old Testament. We don't know who the author of this book is of the 13 Obadiahs. There are two time periods that Obadiah might have been written, according to scholars. One would be 845 BC, placing him during the split of the northern and southern kingdoms uh, of Israel when they split off after Solomon's reign, uh, which would make him an early pro prophet discussing Israel and the Edomites. Another period would be 586 BC. If you guys, do you remember what happened in 586 BC? Babylon, right? When they were taken into exile and Nebuchadnezzar basically thrashed Jerusalem and thrashed uh, all of Israel. So if he lived during 586 BC timeframe, Obadiah is repeating the judgment coming upon Edom in this book that Jeremiah had spoken about. Obadiah, um, Joel uh, 3 actually mentions him as well, references to Obadiah's writings. Joel, Joel who was also a minor prophet, lived in 830 BC. In Amos chapter 1 and 9, which John, Brother John just taught on Amos 3, Edom is discussed in judgment, and Amos would have been about 760 BC when he lived. So are you guys confused yet? Did I confuse you already? You're like, we well, you want Pastor Dave back, man. He's much more simpler, right? But I'm going to keep it simple. Basically, the message here, and we always just look at what's God trying to tell us. Keep it simple. The Edomites were in judgment over and over or warned about judgment. He warns them of this in 845 BC, 760 BC, and 627 BC. That would be easier to take notes on, right, than what I told you originally. So that's the reoccurring theme. Now, the first thing we're going to look at in verses 1 through 9 is the predictions of judgment on Edom. On your outlines, if you have one, I, I wrote a little bit more specific points, but I'm just going to stick to the major point when I'm reading this. So the predictions of judgment on Edom. So let's go ahead and start reading the Word of God. Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord 
And a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised, God says. So the first thing we have to ask is who was Edom? Edom was Israel's neighbor and they were also a relative of Israel, the Edomites. So there's some backstory and this happens about a thousand years before Obadiah's life. Israel and Edom both came from the same lineage. Who knows who they came from? Abraham. Don't all speak at once. Abraham, right? So it starts here with a sibling rivalry. rivalry. Uh, and the sibling, everyone ever had a sibling rivalry in this room? You ever had siblings? You have like, oh, why did my older sister or brother get the bigger room, right? And you're mad about that. And you're like, man, I can't stand them right? And that's not how we should think, but let's be honest, sometimes we thought that when we were younger. Or, you know what? My parents have a favorite. It's my sister. It's my brother. They're their favorite. Well, you know, and sometimes, right, as parents, it's not that they're the favorite. It's just sometimes they need more attention because they have more issues, right? And we're trying to help them through it. Or sometimes it's just we just have maybe things in common that seem to the sibling that they're, they're the favorite, but they're not. Just for you young kids who know that they're not always the favorite. It's just sometimes we're investing in their lives. So Abraham and Sarah have their son. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah have a son. His name's Isaac, right? Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The patriarchs. Isaac's wife is Rebecca. They have two sons. So Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac now marries Rebecca, has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they're twins. Esau is the firstborn. Jacob is the younger, okay? Jacob actually means to supersede, especially by force, treachery, and he's a deceiver. How would you like your name to mean that, right? <laughs> but may God protect is what it also means, okay? But his name is changed. Do you guys remember what Jacob's name is changed to? Israel. Amen. And it's changed when he's wrestling with God on a mountain. We call it a Christophany. It's basically, we believe Christ, at least I do. I believe Christ was wrestling with them. And Jacob won't give up if you remember on the mountain. He keeps wrestling all night long. And then God does what? He's like, man, you have to give up. He's like, I will not give up until you bless me. Okay. And it says the angel of the Lord in, in the Bible, by the way, and he touches his hip and breaks his hip. Right. And then he can basically no longer move. And then God blesses him and he changes his name to Israel. And Israel means wrestles with God and a fighter of God. So when he wrestled with God in his broken hip, he got the blessing of God. Now Esau, when he was born, a little bit different, his, he was hairy, right? And his, maybe he looked like a Sasquatch. I don't know. I mean, he says he was very hairy and that's how they described him. He was really hairy. He also was known by his nickname though. His nickname was Edom, which means red. So he's hairy and red. So now you see the two sons both have changed names. And if you think about what do they both represent? Nations, Israel and Edom. So I'm going to read you something about the twins because we have to go through this backstory to understand Obadiah. Genesis 25, those of you who take notes, Genesis 25 verses 22 through 29, you can read about this. It says, but the two children struggled with each other in the womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it, Rebecca. Why is this happening to me? She asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, two nations, nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. And the older son, which would be Esau, will serve the younger son. And when this time came, came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was red at birth and covered with thick hair and had like a, basically like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skilled hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay in the house. Isaac loved Esau. So the dad loves his firstborn son, Esau, because he enjoyed eating wild game. Remember, I told you something in common. He enjoyed eating wild game with Esau. And brought home, but Rebecca, guess who she loved? The younger son, right? Her favorite was Jacob. So Esau is a man's man, right? It's funny, I was just talking to Brother Bruce. Have you guys ever heard Brother Bruce talk? Brother Bruce talks like this. He's a, he's a man's voice, right? Built for war. 
And Bruce, I just showed him Ken Graves. He had never seen Ken Graves. I said, you sound exactly like Ken Graves. He goes, who's that, brother? And I played him Ken Graves, and he couldn't believe it. He was like, that does sound like me. If you've ever heard Ken Graves preach, that's what he sounds like. And he gets men really riled up. You hear him preach, and you're like, I just want to go break something. You know? We're not to break anything. Don't break anything here. Amen? So Esau is a man's man. So he's the kind of guy who drives a truck. He has a shotgun in the back and he watches survival shows, right? And his dad's like, yeah, Esau. And then Jacob's more of a mama's boy. He drives a Prius, maybe. He plays video games all day alone in his room, right? And, and maybe, just maybe, he has a man bun. Maybe he's got a man bun. I'm just saying. Those of you who have man buns, I mean, you have a man bun. <laughs> So one day when Jacob was, prob- was cooking some stew at home, so Jacob the younger brother is cooking some stew, Esau arrives home from the wilderness exhausted and he's hungry. Esau smells the stew and says to his brother, I'm starved, give me some of that soup. Jacob says, okay, brother, I'll give it to you, but trade me your birthright and you can have some stew. So the birthright, I'm gonna go through this. The birthright in Jewish culture In a father's death or an absent, the eldest son received his birthright. And that birthright included this, becoming the patriarch of the family, assuming the father's authority. Second, he receives twice the financial inheritance than the other sons. And here's the most important part. He would receive his father's blessing from God. Okay? So Esau says, what good is my birthright to his brother if I'm starving right now? And Esau traded away his birthright to Jacob. He ate and drank and left. And basically he despised his birthright. Who would give up their birthright and all those blessings from God and the authority God wanted to give him for the family to take care of them for some soup? And I'll never forget this. I taught this to the youth group. Some of you in the youth group, now they're not in the youth group anymore, but some of them uh, might remember this. And someone raises a hand and says, well, what kind of soup are we talking about? Chili? And I'm not going to say who it was, <coughs> Daniel. <coughs> His mom can talk to him about that. So you don't trade away, guys, what is valuable from God for something that is temporal. He was hungry then and then. All he thought about immediately is, what do I physically need right now? What do I need spiritually in the future? Eh, not that important. Guys, it should always be important, the future and where we're going to be spiritually over what our circumstances are right now in the physical. Amen. So now Esau was red and hairy, the stew was red, so the Bible in verse 30 of that chapter calls him Edom. So that's the soup's red, he's uh, hairy and red, and that's where he gets hairy red guy, okay? Fast forward now to Genesis 27. Isaac's blessing is now going to be given to Jacob. Remember, he didn't get the blessing, he just ate the soup and walked out. Isaac says one day, as he's on his deathbed, the father's now about to die, he says, Esau, go hunt, prepare me my favorite meat. Isaac says, Esau, before I die, feed me my favorite thing and I will give you my blessing. It belongs to you, my firstborn son. And Rebecca hears this. So the mom, right, who loves the younger one, the one who drives the Prius. Josh drives a Prius, by the way. I'm just saying. But, but Josh also played football and he's got big muscles. So I'm not worried about Josh. Okay. So Rebecca hears and tells Jacob to bring her a goat to prepare for Isaac, his meal. She wants to replicate it. Isaac can't see now, and Jacob will pretend to be his brother Esau and get Esau's blessing. Remember, he gave it away. So really, Isaac's just going, or yeah, I mean, Jacob's just going, I'm going to take what he already gave me, right? Isaac, though, says, come close. Well, actually, Rebecca goes, you know what? He might be pretty much blind, but he might know you don't smell like Esau. He might go to feel you and you won't feel like Esau. So what she does, she takes the goat's hair, puts it on his arm and puts it behind uh, Jacob's neck. She goes, when your father goes to grab you, he'll reach out and he'll think it's Esau from the hair on your arms. He'll also smell the animal on you and think, oh, well, Esau always smelled like animals because he was the hunter. So Isaac says, come close to me, my son, so I can make sure it's you, Esau. And he reaches out and he touches the goat on him. So Isaac ends up blessing Jacob, thinking it's Esau. Then Esau returns. Esau comes back from hunting with his dad's the real favorite meal. He cooks it up and he asks his father, can I have my blessing now? Esau realizes what has happened, though, and begs his father to bless him. He realizes his brother took his blessing. He's like, whoa, whoa, wait, Dad. 
give me the blessing? Why did you give it to him when he was tricked? And Isaac says to his son, I cannot bless you, my son. It's already gone. Jacob, you, the older son, will now serve the younger son. And Esau cries. I'm not going to cry on the pulpit, okay? But Esau cried. Esau says he will mourn his father, but then he's coming after Jacob and he's going to kill him for what he did. That's exactly what he's going to do. Esau, if you look at it, here's what he did. He traded away his spiritual blessing from God for physical pleasures of this world, a meal. And guess what? God noticed and God allowed his blessing to be given away. When Esau said, what good is my birthright? I'm starving. He essentially said, what good is God's favor in the future when I have wants now? I don't need to wait for God, nor do I want to wait for God. We can also be like that where we don't want to wait for God. Amen? Has anyone in here never not made it for God and made a bad decision? Didn't wait on the Lord and hearing from him? I want to get married now. I'm getting older. And a woman may settle for a man who's truly not the man God had for them. Or likewise, the boy may go out with a girl who's not, of, who's not equally yoked, who's not of the same belief, but he wants to be married and he doesn't wait on God. Giving away for the physical now instead of the spiritual blessing that God has for them later. Amen? Guys, we should always wait on God for the future and his blessing. Amen? I'll take the first job that comes my way to pay my bills. And guess what? We need you to work on Sunday and we need you to work on Thursday night. So you miss midweek service and you miss Sundays. But you know what? I'm paying my rent. You're doing well physically immediately, but what's happening spiritually? I already know what's happening spiritually. You're getting farther away from God. You want to know how I know? Because I've been there. And that's what happens. And I've seen it amongst many young men and grown men. They take a job and they're like, well, I'm providing for my family. Next thing you know, they're not coming to church, they're not reading their Bible, and they're getting a divorce. So guys, think about not the immediate, but think about the spiritual blessings in the future. How about sports? Maybe take away from your blessing from God. Maybe your son or daughter is in some type of league, and you got to be there on Sunday mornings. And I'm not saying once in a while. It's okay to, to miss church once in a while and go to a game and that. But if you're going to a, a sporting event for your kids or yourself, and it's taking you away from church every Sunday and every Thursday... You need to quit playing that sport, amen? And, and get in church and be spiritually fed. Again, I'm not saying it's all the time. There's going to be exceptions to that. All of us have done that. A warning here for us not to be like Esau. Hebrews 12, verse 16, for those of you who take notes. Listen to what he says here in Hebrews. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with his tears. So remember, he's crying in front of his father. But here's one thing I notice. The Bible never says he asked God to forgive him for not valuing the birthright and the blessings of God. He never repented, never asked, Lord, forgive me for what I did. He just said, no, I want it back. And if I can't get it, I'll kill my brother. Wrong reaction to God's grace and mercy. Esau could not change also the outcome of the blessing he lost. Remember his father said, son, I can't give it to you. It's already gone. God blesses us and we take it for granted sometimes, guys. We make unrighteous decisions and there are consequences for wicked decisions. And sometimes those outcomes of those wicked decisions, they cannot be reversed. They can't. So be careful what you do. When you make those decisions, did you hear from the Holy Spirit before you made that decision? We trade away our blessings for wealth. We work all day, all night, seven days a week, and we never see our children and our family, and then they fall apart because the Father's not there in the house to lead them. We drink and drive. We kill someone or someone else's family member. You cannot take that back. That person's gone. You made a bad decision in unrighteousness that you shouldn't have made. You should repent for it, but you can't take it back. It's done. We do drugs. We become drug addicts. We lose our friendships. We lose our family members who no longer want to associate us. And eventually, sometimes we lose our jobs. And then at, the, at some point, we die or we overdose sometimes. You cannot get your life back. It's done, right? Until you take your last breath and then stand before Jesus Christ. So guys, sometimes in our unrighteous decisions, we can't reverse them. So make sure you're making a godly decision when you're in that moment and you're praying and you're meditating on God's word. Amen? Yeah. 
we commit adultery and we lose our wives. Well, sometimes the wives, no, I'm done. I'm done. I won't take you back. So guys, value your wife, cherish her. You get one wife here on earth. You know she won't be your wife in heaven, right? Says that in the Bible. So cherish every moment you have with your wife here because this is your time with her. Amen? That's to the married men. And to those one day who might be married, cherish your wives. Amen? So Esau could not change the outcome of his blessing he lost. A bad decision, guys, can affect the rest of your life and even into eternity, which we'll see that it did with Esau. Now, uh, verse three through four. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is so high, you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high and as high as eagles, and though you set your nest amongst the stars, from there I will bring you down, Edom, says the Lord. Uh, John, if I could pull up the, the first slide. So I'm going to show you where these people dwelled. And it says this in Genesis 36, uh, 8. Is that the first slide? Number one? I think number one is caves. Um. So I'm going to read this from Genesis 36. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Seir. Esau is Edom. So remember that. He says Esau is Edom, meaning hairy and rough. Also, Mount Seir was very red. So this right here is actually called the Sick. It's actually a little bit out of order, but this is the Sick Gorge. This leads to the city called Petra. So Esau went to the land of Seir, later known as Edom, and then now today known as Petra. It's a city carved into a rock and is surrounded by mountains riddled with passages and gorges. And this is one of the gorges that is there. It's one of the world's most famous, famous archaeological site. It basically was a fortress, just like God said. They built this fortress where no one could get to them. Entering into the city was this gorge. It is a dim, narrow gorge in some points, uh, no more than 10 feet wide. So this is no more than 10 feet wide. And it stretches almost a mile long, okay? And get this, its walls were 299 feet high and 597 feet high at its highest point, almost 600 feet high. So if you were trying to protect yourself from invaders who wanted to come and take your nation or your kingdom, this would be the most ideal place to build it where no one can touch me, it's impenetrable, and that's what they thought. The thick gorge ends at the treasury that was carved into a rock. It's three, it, and by the way, Petra, uh, at that time, Seir, was 3,000 feet in elevation. So not only did you have this gorge, not only did you have it built into a rock, but it was also, you know, they were 3,000 feet above the valley below. So you had to, right, you want to fight going downhill, you don't want to fight going uphill. Can we go to the next slide? And the gorge ends at this, and that's the treasury. You can see how they carved it into a rock, okay? It was quite magnificent. And go to the next slide. This is actually an amphitheater there at Petra. Um, the Nabataeans also lived there for many years and they built a lot of stuff. But you can see this thing is carved into the side of a mountain and it's amazing. I would one day like to go there. Um, I'm sure maybe some of you have been there before. And then the next slide. This is the caves they would dwell in. So when he said, you have built your houses and your city inside of a rock, God literally meant you literally carved out a rock and that's where you lived. And you think you were so safe and that no one could hurt you. And this were the Edomites. Is there one more? Or was, that it? was that it? Oh, this as well. Just an, another uh, version of, uh, well, another view uh, of the city of Seir or Edom or now Petra. And that's it, right, John? Yeah. But God said what? Yeah, you have your city on the rock. Yeah, you're up in the mountains. Yeah, you have to climb 3,000 feet of elevation to get to you for city walls that are 600 feet high and only 10 feet wide. But he says, I will bring it to the ground in that verse. Verse three, it says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, Edom. The foundation of sin, guys, is pride in everything we do. You've heard Josh say it, you've heard Dave say it, and it's something I'm going to say as well to remind you. Edom thought nothing could bring them down. Pride is a deceiver. It makes us think things about ourselves that are simply not true, and it also makes us think things about others that are not true. I'll give you an example. Envy. We believe we deserve what others have. Like, I deserve that, but maybe we haven't worked for it and the other person has. So we believe they shouldn't get that because they're not a good person. And that's probably not true what we believe about them. And we believe we're a good person and we deserve it. Probably not true as well. See, it may, pride makes us believe things about others that's not true and about ourselves. How about fault finding? We find sin in others, but not ourselves, right? 
That guy is always late for church. And you know who you are. No, I'm just kidding. That guy's always late for church, right? And we're sitting there thinking, oh man, you know what? I'm always on time. You know, is he, how close to the Lord is he? He can't be, I mean, look at him, right? And then you know what? Then we find out two months later, he works a night shift and he gets off work at 945 and he rushes all the way over here as quick as he can get here. And he sits in our service. See, we think things about others that sometimes just aren't true. And then we think things about ourselves that are, I'm holy, man. I'm here 15 minutes early, man. I help set up the snack table. Look at me, right? We should serve, by the way. And we need help with snacks. <laughs> Criticism. You refuse to be debated, rebuked, or corrected. You get rebuked or corrected by a fellow brother in the Lord. You know, you're like, you know what, dude? That guy's a jerk. I never liked him. And now he said something to me, you know. But that's not true, Right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of your enemy. People who tell you the truth because they want you to be closer to God, praise God. Sometimes we got to listen. And guys, it's not about the messenger. We could have an unbeliever tell us, dude, you're so far from a Christian. I don't get it, bro. You do all kinds of wicked things. You go, who is that heathen, that unbeliever to tell me that I'm not holy? But let me ask you something. Does it matter who the messenger is? Is it true? If it's true, then guys, we have to receive it. Amen? It's like, is that true about me? You don't listen to advice. Proverbs 19.20. Get all the advice and instruction you can so you will be wise the rest of your life. Show favoritism. God doesn't show favoritism. He's not, he's not partial. Maybe we, we only want to be friends who are in church with people we like or relate to who are successful. Humility. If you have to tell someone you're humble, you're probably not. I'll just leave it at that. I don't even need to say anything else. Horatius Bonner, he was a hymn writer in the 1800s. And I love this. He said this. In all unbelief, there are two things in common in all unbelief. A good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. Isn't that the truth? A good opinion of ourselves and a bad opinion of others too. The Edomites had a high opinion of themselves and a bad or low opinion of God and his people. A lack of reverence for God. Like who? Like Esau. He lacked reverence for God. That's why he was like, I don't know, the birthright, that's fine. Whatever, dude, give me the, give me the chili. It was actually lentil soup, by the way. It was red. Let's read five through six. So verse five. If thieves had come to you, Edom, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Gleanings, by the way, were, it was kind of the welfare system in the Old Testament. They would crop their, they would get their harvest, but they would leave the corners. And those were the gleanings for the people who didn't have anything to eat. So God is saying, if grape gatherers had come to you, would not they have left some gleanings? Oh, how, e oh, how Esau shall be searched out. Now notice how God keeps intertwining Edom with Esau, the names. One minute he says Esau, then he says Edom, the nation. Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. So Edom was located on multiple trade routes. Therefore, they amassed a huge amount of wealth from different many nations, and they did business with different many nations because they were on a trade route. The prophet there says their wealth, though, would be plundered, okay? In verse 5, he says, even robbers would leave something behind for you. If, if, it's like if anyone's ever had their home robbed here, I know we did when I was a kid, probably a lot of people have. The thieves don't take everything, right? They take what they can get and get out quick, but they always leave something behind. You're like, oh man, I'm so, I'm so happy they left my Keurig, right? Something like that. But what God's saying is, I'm going to take everything you have, all your worldly treasures, there will be nothing left. Robbers would have left you something I'm not going to. I don't know about you, it's something, and we, we do that too, right? We, maybe they hid things, treasures way back in the cave somewhere, like I showed you. They're like, no one will ever find this. It's like me when I put something really valuable in a sock, and then I put the sock inside of a shoe, and then the shoe inside of a pillowcase, and then the pillowcase inside of my, of my travel case, and then I put that way in the closet in the back. They'll never find it. The thieves will never find it, right? You guys don't do that? <laughs> That's what they thought. But when God plundered, when God's going to plunder, he's like, no, I'll find it all. It'll all be gone no matter where you hid it. That's what he's saying. 
In the 1800s, when they rediscovered Petra, which I showed you, all the rock graves had been looted. So not only did God end up taking it all, he took even everything the dead people were buried with. It's gone. It was all looted by people of the world and different uh, nations and tribes. There was absolutely nothing left of the Edomites or their treasures, just as God had said. Amen. Does the Bible rock or what? It's so true. In the end, guys, all men will lose what? All our earthly treasures, but heavenly treasures are not plundered and await us in heaven. Remember that. Don't focus only on building earthly treasures. Focus on the treasures in heaven that await us. So let's read verse seven. All the men in your confederacy, confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread, eat them. Your bread, they shall lay a trap for you. No one is even aware of what's going to happen. So this is what he's saying. He says the confederacy, those are the allies with the nation of Edom. Your friends, other people who are pagans, other people who worship the wrong gods, but they did business with you because it was convenient and it benefited them and it benefited you, right? It wasn't because they did it because they loved you and they had a heart for you and your people. Guys, when we break bread with people, right, that's an intimate fellowship. And here they were breaking bread with these people they shouldn't have been. Intimate and close relationships based on mutual gain for the wrong reasons. Look, when I started my business, many of you know I own a marketing business and I build websites for a living and I work from home. I started my own business. And when I found a partner to go in business, I have a partner. When I went into business with him, I, one of the very first things, I knew him for a long time. He had to be a Christian I would not go into business with someone who's not a Christian because what happens when they ask you to do something that's not righteous and doesn't follow God's commandments? Well, we're going to do this. We're going to cheat on our taxes. Well, we're going to take advantage of this customer, right? I knew that could happen. I see many other Christians who go into business with non-Christians. There becomes a moral question in the business. And look, I talk to my business partner more than I talk to my wife sometimes because it's all day we're working on things. So if I'm in that type of intimate relationship with them, he had to be equally yoked with me. Amen. So I kind of took the principle of being equally yoked with those I do business with where it's my partner. I'm not saying we don't go to a tax guy or, you know, go to a gas station or a store. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're going to have a very intimate relationship, that's basically almost like a marriage, make sure they're equally yoked with you. But these guys didn't. And God's saying, they're going to come in and how they're going to get you is they can't come in and just fully come in with force. They're going to come in and break bread with you one day and they're going to bring their army in and then they're going to, they're going to demolish you from the inside out. That's what he's saying. And then eight through nine. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty man, O Timon, shall be dismayed to the end of everyone from the mountains of Esau. There he is again. He's referring to the nation as Esau. May be cut off by slaughter. The Lord says, I will destroy the wise men of Edom, mighty men of Taman. So the Edomites boasted in their wisdom as well, especially of the city of Taman. They were noted in the Bible as the phrase men of the East in the Old Testament. It often refers to these men of Edom of uh, Taman. In a passage like, if you take notes, 1 Kings 4.30, 1 Kings 4.30, it declares the great wisdom of the men of the East. So that's Taman. Jeremiah, if you take notes, Jeremiah 49.7 says of Edom, is wisdom no more in Timon? Timon? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? This was another source of their pride, the Edomites, was their wisdom and their knowledge. Now, guess who Timon was? He was the grandson of Esau. It is the land of his grandson. Generation, and this what this tells generations of sin and Esau's rejection of God and God's plan for his life and God's blessing can go on from generation to generation, and that's what it did here. Now this is his grandson who thinks he's so wise and impenetrable and doesn't need God. It's important, guys, that we break uh, patterns in our families of sin, and it can only be done through the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's what it means when it says, oh, I'll curse your family from generation to generation. It's basically our sins that we continue to practice. Well, my great-grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. Now I'm an alcoholic. My great-grandfather cheated on his wife and my dad cheated on his wife. So now I'm going to cheat on my wife. No, that's where we, as Christian parents, we break that generational curse. And we say, no, we're not going to do that. We're, me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to go to church and we're going to honor him. And no, I love my wife. And that's not going to happen. And then my son hopefully will do the same thing and his son will do the same thing. Amen. Amen. So 
No, guys, there's a lot of things in there, right, that, that happens. So I'm not saying, hey, you do all these things. Everyone has free will. Your kids have free will as well. But you do your part in raising your kids and your family, amen? So get this, in verse nine, it says, even your mon- young mighty men will be slaughtered. Arabs invaded Edom and took over the cities, driving the Edomites to the west. The Greeks and the Romans called these Edomites, they renamed them Edomians. God may have rejected, guys, the nation of Edom, but there will still be Edomites that will follow Christ later. And that's interesting. In Mark, again, those take notes, Mark 3, verse 7 through 8. Mark 3, 7 through 8. It says this, I'm gonna read it to you. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude of Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and get this, and Idumea. That's the Edomites. They were changed. They're no longer the Edomites, but the Edomians. So when we look at a, 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 um, a culture, a nation, a certain amount of people, there's no way those people are, can ever follow Christ or be righteous. We see it all the time, right? People convert from all different kinds of religions. So never write off a certain people or a culture that they cannot believe upon the name of Jesus Christ because here were Edomites that did and followed Jesus, but they were called Edomians at that time. And then uh, now we're going to move on to the second point on the outline. The reasons for the judgment on Edom, verses 10 through 14. So to start off, I'm going to tell you a little bit of story. I'm going to do my best to remember this. I'll probably look at my notes. So just like uh, Jacob and Esau, there's two families. Uh, one of the families is kind of rough, like, like Esau, and they're farmers and everything, and they're rough, and they live off the land. The other family, uh, they kind of have this home they grew up on, but they all move to the city, and they become lawyers and doctors and things like that. So you have one that's blue-collar, like Esau. The other one's kind of white-collar workers. And, one, and these families can't stand each other. They've just kind of broken off and split over the years. So the one family of farmers lives on this land. The, the other family of the, um, of the uh, we'll call them city slickers, lives on this side of land. So the grandson of one of the city slickers comes home one time to live at the house and stay there for a week. He decides to go duck hunting, okay? So I'm going to go duck hunting. So he takes his shotgun, he goes out, he shoots a duck. That duck falls on the farmer family's side of the fence. He can't really reach it, so he's got to jump over. So he goes, I'm going to go get that duck. That's my duck. I shot it. Even though it's on their land, it's like four or five feet away. He starts to jump the fence. Well, this old man from the farmer family goes, hey, man, what are you doing, bro? What are you doing on my land? And the, and the city slick, he's a great lawyer. He's from New York. City slick lawyer. He's the best at what he does. Uh, everybody loves him. He's like the chosen lawyer. He says to him, he goes, well, that's my duck. I shot it. And then the, um, the old man says, no, it's not. It's on my land. And the lawyer says, you know what? I'm the best lawyer in New York. I'll sue you, old man, for everything you have. You don't give me that duck. And so the old man goes, you know what? I'll tell you what. I know you're from the city. He goes, we have a rule around here. It's called the three kick rule. I'll tell you what. It fell on my land, so I'll go first. I kick you three times, then you kick me three times. I kick you three times, you kick me three times. Whoever gives up first doesn't get the duck, and the other one's the winner. They get the duck. And the city slicker can't stand this family. He knows there's been this, this split, and they've always hated the other family. And he goes, you know, I'm going to show them once or for all. I, I'm tougher than them. They always think they're tough. So the lawyer goes, okay, I'll do that. That's a customer around here, I'll do it. And so the farmer goes, okay. So the lawyer kind of, you know, he gets ready to get kicked. And the farmer comes up. And he kicks him as hard as he can in the stomach to where his lunch comes out. And the lawyer goes down to two knees. And the farmer comes up. He has a steel toe boot on and kicks him right across the face. And the lawyer goes down and he's dizzy and his nose is bleeding. Then he takes one running start and kicks him right in the back of the kidney. And the lawyer's like, ooh. And the farmer's like, there's no way he's going to get up. And the city slicker lawyer, he pulls everything with the side of me. He goes, I can't let this family win again. They're always taking advantage of us. And he gets up. He goes, all right, old man. Now it's my turn. And the old man smiles and goes, yeah, I give up. You can have the duck. (laughs) (laughs) They were always taking, right? He's like, I'm going to take advantage of him again. I'm going to beat him while he's down. He can't get to the duck. I know he shot it. What would be the right thing to do? Give it back to him, right? But he's like, no, I'm going to take advantage of him while he's at a disadvantage. And then Obadiah, you're like, what does that have to do with anything? (laughs) All right, let's read Obadiah verse 10. And and we'll find out, okay? Hopefully we'll find out. 
Verse 10, for violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Okay, so it was violence against their neighbor that God's like, here's the judgment coming and here's why. Because you always kick them when they're down. That's the, the joke. You kick them when they're down. You take advantage of situations against Israel. In Genesis 36, 8 through 9, those of you who take notes, Genesis 36, 8 through 9, Esau, also known as Edom, settled in Seir. It gives an account of his descendants. Esau's son is Eliphaz, and he has a son. Guess what his son's name? Amalek, the Amalekites. Who remembers the Amalekites? During their exodus from Egypt, uh, the the Jews uh, were traveling uh, through the land, and Moses' hands are held up, if you remember, on a mountain because they run into the the Amalekites. They go into a battle, and Aaron and Hur hold up both his arms, and God says, you'll win the battle as long as his arms are held up. Moses' arms are held up. If his arms come down, you'll lose. So that's the Amalekites, right? They, They, and again, descendants of Esau. You see, just generation, generation, people after people in opposition to God and his people. Scripture records the long-lasting feud between the Amalekites, the Edomites, and the Israelites. God has turned his wrath on Edom in Obadiah for the poor treatment of his brother, is, for the poor, oh, sorry, the poor treatment of his brother, Israel in the past. In the book of Numbers, Moses is bringing the Israelites out of the wilderness into the promised land after 400 years of bondage, and they come to the border of Edom. You guys might remember this in Numbers. Those of you who take notes, if you want to read it later, Numbers 20, verse 14 through 21. Numbers 20, verse 14 through 21. Moses sends messengers to the king of Edom. So he's coming out of bondage, and Moses says, uh, as your brothers, Edom, I tell you, you know what we have been through in Egypt. Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. We cried out to God though and he brought us out of slavery, but he brought us to the edge of your border. Can we please pass through? Remember they have women and children with them, maybe some belongings, food they got, right? They're struggling. Little kids with them. Just let us pass through your land. It's a safer route. It's, It's quicker. Moses says, we won't even pass through your fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from your wells. We'll follow the road. We won't even look left or right to even be tempted to take anything. If we even take anything, a sip of water, we'll pay you for it. But Edom said, the king, no, try and we'll cut you down with our sword. So Edom came out against Israel with their army and Edom Edom refused to give Israel passage through their land. So Israel turned away and went around Edom. So you see this feud It just keeps going. They can't stand the Israelites. In Deuteronomy, oh, and this is is interesting. Moses, though, right? You think these people who just treat him wrong at every chance they get, he tells the Israelites this. I command you, the Jews, to treat the Edomites like your brothers, to treat them well. So you have one who's like more like, hey, let's treat them well. The other one's like, no. Deuteronomy 23.7, it reads this. Deuteronomy 23, 7. Do not detest the Edomites. This is actually Moses, what I just told you. Edomites or the Egyptians because the Edomites are your relatives and you lived as foreigners amongst the Egyptians. He's basically saying when they went to Egypt, at first they weren't in bondage. They actually lived there. Ezekiel 35, 2 says this. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it because you have had an ancient hatred, Edom, and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. And then let's read verse 11. When they were invaded, you stood, Edom, aloof, refusing to help them, Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. So in 2 Chronicles in 21, it describes an attack against Jerusalem during the reign of Jehoram, and that would have been 848 BC, by the Philistines and the Arabians. 2 Kings 24 and 25 describes the attack of the Babylonians, like we mentioned earlier when I started on Jerusalem in 586 BC. Edom stood there and watched as Israelites died. And we read this in Proverbs, guys. Rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to die. Save them as they stagger to their death. As Christians, when we say something being done wrong to someone else, we should stand up for them, especially those weaker than us. We should always make righteous decisions to stick up for people who can't stick up for themselves. That's why I'm so much against abortion and sticking up for unborn babies. Amen? Amen. When you see wrong being done to others and you have the means to help, help. 
I'll never forget this. There was a car crash in front of my old house, and um, they crashed. They went up the curb. The car couldn't drive anymore. And a couple minutes later, the boyfriend gets out, and he's yelling at the mom who's pregnant, and then she's got her little baby by the hand who's maybe two years old, and the baby's screaming. We, hear, we heard the car crash. Neighbors came out. None of the neighbors went over there. We were just kind of all looking from a distance. Well, my wife walks out. She sees it, and he's cursing at her and yelling at her and abusing her verbally, like, like almost to the point where it sounded like he probably beat her, you know, if he was at home. And my wife said, oh, nuh-uh, uh-uh. So my wife goes, no way, Doug, get out here now. We need to go help her. And I'm thinking, like, my wife's braver than me because this dude's going to know where I live now. Like, I don't know this guy, right? And my wife's like, I'm going to call the cops. And I'm like, well, wait a second. She's like, I'm calling the cops. You can't treat a woman like that. So my wife calls the cops. Now, the cops are coming. So now the little girl and the wife run, like, because they see my wife out there. And she's on the phone. She's not even hiding. She's like, I'm going to call cops. And she's on our driveway. And the little girl and the mom come running towards my wife. And my wife hugs and says, what's going on? And she tells her, oh, he's abusive. Uh, he, he's yelling at me. I think he's going to hurt me. I'm scared. And uh, my wife says, well, we called for help. Don't worry. You stay here with us. And I'm sitting there like, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, stay, let's, yeah, stay here with us. <laughs> <laughs> and the cops come and they cuff the guy and they sit him on the curb in front of my house. And I'm standing over there. And then the cop comes up to interview me and my wife. So he's standing there looking at us as he's saying, what did he do? You know, and I'm like, well, we did this and this and this. And you know what? My wife was right. Stood up for her. And you know what? And I thought, well, this guy knows where I live. He looked pretty rough, right? And um, we just prayed over our house, prayed for the protection of the Lord. We did what was right. Amen. But they didn't do what was right. You know, they just watched their brother be uh, um, um, plundered. And they even joined in and took stuff with them. In fact, at one point, where I think I'm going to put it here in the notes, they actually would wait in the mountains during Babylon when uh, they were taking Jerusalem. And the Jews and the Maccabees are all running to the mountains. And the Edomites would cut them off, take them captive, and hand them over to the Babylonians for, for money. Here you go. Here's our brother. Take them. Put them in the slavery. Obadiah uh, 112, let's read verse 12. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in that day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. So again, Edom rejoicing over Jude, uh, Judah's uh, destructions. And we read this in Proverbs. This is Proverbs 24, 17. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't be happy when they stumble. For the Lord will be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. And that kind of goes back to a sibling thing. Those of you who've ever had brothers or sisters, and maybe it's the favorite one, and they get in trouble, and your parents start to give them a good whooping, and you're standing behind, I've done this when I was young, you're standing behind the doorway, <laughs> you're getting beat, right? I don't do that. That's not what God wants, right? Pray for them. Pray that they don't do whatever they did to get the beating, not to do it again, amen? And then verse 13, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. That's what I mean. So not only were they sitting there watching Jerusalem be sacked by Arabians in 800 BC, but then Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, but they were joining in, going in the gates and taking treasures for themselves. Hey, they're robbing you. Sorry, bro. I'm gonna rob you too, right? Kicking people while they're down. Verse 14, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among you who tried to escape, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Um, so again, they were cutting them off, turning them over to Babylonians. They're going into the city, finding ones that were hiding and handing them over to the Babylonians. They joined in killing God's people and the capturing and turning over of God's people. Edom had a low opinion, I'll say it again, for the people of God. They made the people of God their enemies. They hated Israel and cursed them. We should never curse Israel, amen? I am pro-Israel. You know all your pastors are pro-Israel here. We read this, Genesis 12.3, Genesis 12.3. I will bless you, those who bless you. He's talking about Israel. I will curse curse him who curses you, Israel, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm pro-Jewish people, but I also try to convert Jewish people every chance I get. Amen? And you guys should too as well. Uh, we had an open, we, we, me and my wife were driving around. Um, she likes to look at things we can't afford and can't buy. So we went to an open house. I do too. I enjoy it too. I'm not going to... But we go to this open house and we meet this uh, really great uh, Jewish realtor. Or Jewish realtor? No. 
not just Rosa, but she was a Christian, but her son, she married a Jew. Her son was Jewish. And one of the things he said to me as I'm talking to him about Jesus, he says to me, he goes, yeah, he goes, oh yeah, I'm not really a practicing Jew. And I know you feel the same way. I just want people to believe whatever they believe. And I don't need to persuade people. And there's no reason to convert everyone. Let everyone believe what they believe. And I said, no, actually, I'm quite different. I'm going to try to convert you right now and right here. Right? And one of the stories I told him is there's, I'm not going to tell you, I don't say names from the pulpit because I want anyone to stumble, but there's these two magicians I used to watch years ago. One's really tall, one's short. And the magician was an, they're atheists. They're outspoken atheists. Even in their magic act, they're, they're atheists and they do a lot of atheist commentary. He said one time, they asked him in an interview, what's the most uh, surprising thing anyone's ever said to you at a magic show? And they're big, like Vegas, huge arenas. And he says, you know what? Uh, the most weirdest thing or amazing thing, he goes, someone came up to me who was a Christian knowing that I'm, I'm very outspoken about being an atheist. He came up to me after the show and he said, do you know Jesus Christ? He goes, I want to tell you about Jesus and, and Jesus wants you to believe in him. And he said, now I'm an atheist. A lot of atheists would just curse someone out like that or tell them, no, I don't want any part of that. He goes, but you know what? I thanked him for telling me that. Because if you're a Christian, he said, and you truly believe there's a heaven and hell, and you believe there's this amazing place that people who don't believe won't go there, how dare you walk around saying you love people and not tell them about Jesus? Amen. He goes, so I have no problem as an atheist, someone coming to me and telling me, he goes, you should be. He goes, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you as a Christian. Amen? Amen? So yeah, I try to convert them. Paul persuaded those to believe in 2 Corinthians. That's it. We're to persuade people, guys. We're not to keep our mouths closed. 2 Corinthians 5.11. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too, as he said to the people. That's Paul. Edom took pleasure in Israel's suffering, like siblings celebrating the punishment of their other sibling. Do not rejoice when you see someone fall um, and we should take note that God does not like when we mistreat anyone. Amen? Don't mistreat people. All right. Um, the results of judgment on your outline, 15 through 18. The results of judgment. Obadiah 15 through 16. For the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you, Edom, your reprisal shall return upon your own head. So you reap what you sow is what God's saying. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow and they shall be as though they had never been. Just as you drank in, uh, on wrath on my people, on my temple mount against my people, I, the Lord, will continually pour out my wrath on you. All nations will pour out their wrath on Edom and drink on your mountain. So God, God often in the Bible refers to his wrath as a cup that we drink from. It's mentioned in Revelation when he pours out that cup upon earth. If you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he pray before he went to the cross? Lord, if there's any way to what? Take this cup of wrath, you could say, from me because he was about to receive his father's wrath. He was about to receive the wrath of his father for everything we did upon himself. But I love that he was obedient and said, but Father, if there's no other way, these people in this church today are worth it to me. Amen? And then Obadiah uh, 17 and 18. Let's read. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. Joseph was Jacob's son, Israel's son. You guys remember Joseph, right? Yeah, when he went into his brother... You see how it doesn't change, right? What did his brothers do? Oh, he's your favorite. Joseph, he's your favorite. Yeah, dad loves you. Isaac loves well, you, right? Let's just give him to the, to the Egyptians as a slave, right? So it just doesn't stop. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So, and the word, let me ask you, who in here is an Edomite? Nobody, all right, all right. Because they don't exist anymore. They're gone, just as God said. The word of the Lord through Obadiah proved to be true. The Edomites fought side by side with the Jews in the rebellion against Rome in 66, 70 AD, and they were crushed by Rome never to be heard from again. Predictions of Obadiah were precisely fulfilled. You just won't meet an Edomite today. You never want to be in rebellion with God 
Why? Never ends well, does it? Ever? Never. Read the Bible, it never ends well. Verse 19 through 21. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. The Philistines. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of the hosts of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd Shepherd shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall all be the Lord's. This is speaking of Jesus. I'm not going to go too into that, right? Jesus will come back in his millennial reign. Jesus will create a new heaven and earth. But at one point, all of the Holy Land will be in Jesus's control again. So that's what they're referring to there. Saviors, deliverers will come to help Israel and truly the Savior of us all. There will be only judges for them, not deliverers for Edom, but there's deliverers for Israel. The opposition of the Edomites will continue into the birth of Christ, okay? One of the most famous Edomites in history was abhorred by Israel. Many of the Edomites' spectacular building projects were built in Judea by this man, intended to not only glorify his own name, but to win the favor of the Jews who despised him because he was an Edomite. Does anyone know who that man was? It was the great King Herod. King Herod was an Edomite, but would have been known as, as an Edomian because they were no longer Edomites. Herod, you remember what he did? Eventually, he performed a horrible act that ended up what? Killing thousands of children under two years old in an attempt to what? Kill the Messiah, to kill Jesus. So do you see this feud as it started with these two babies in the womb and then these two nations? It just continued all the way on to the birth of Jesus Christ trying to be prevented by those same people. So you talk about opposition, there you have it. That's why I say sometimes our decisions now can go into eternity. We can't take them back. Soup. Soup. Mm. Chili's not even a soup, is it? Mm. I don't know. All right, Balaam to Balak. Numbers 24, 17, those of you. I see him. So this is Balak, the, Balaam, the prophet, talking to Balak, the corrupt king who wanted to conquer the Israel. Um, he's talking about Jesus here. Listen to this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, a batter to the brow of Moab and the Moabites, and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And here it is, and Edom shall be a possession, Seir also. His enemies shall be a possession, the enemies of Jesus. While Israel does valiantly out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Amen? The glory of our king on a white horse. God's opposition and judgment towards Edom was apparent. But now I want to go back because I told you that this would be the story of nations. This would be a story of sibling rivalry. Uh, this would be a story also of uh, history, but it's also a story of theology, okay? Two nations, not two people. Paul, knowing the history and the prophecy that we all just went through and reading Obadiah and going back and forth to the other major and minor prophets, Paul had these writings. So in Romans 9, now in the New Testament, Jesus already come, obviously, 9, 10 through 13, we read this. And this, I used to be a Calvinist, by the way, uh, years ago, and this was one of the scriptures I held on to. It says this, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, Jacob and Esau, nor having any good, done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand not of the works, but of him who calls us. It was said to her, Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Hard wording. Probably better put in translation, Jacob I have accepted, God would say, but Esau I have rejected. And we saw that throughout history. Romans 9, 1 through 5. So this is right before those verses. Chapter 9, if you haven't, read chapter 9, 10, and 11. And it's talking about Paul's anguish for his people not being able to still be saved because they wouldn't believe in Jesus Christ. 
So in 1 through 5, Paul is in anguish for his people, the people of Israel. He says this, that they, but Lord, they received the covenants. Theirs is the adoption, the sonship. The Jews received divine glory. We have the law. We have temple worship and sacrifices. We have your promises and your favor. We have the patriarchs. From them, it's traced the human ancestry and the coming Messiah. See, because the first two sons, you have Ishmael and Isaac. And remember, God didn't wait. Well, who was the firstborn of Abraham? Ishmael. So it was easy for Jews to go, you know what? He's not the son of promise. We understand that because he was illegitimate. But Isaac is the legitimate son. So we're from, the, we're from uh, Abraham and Isaac, right? But now God throws a wrench in the plan. He has two sons. And again, this firstborn son, Esau, is not illegitimate. So they could say, hey, we're going to heaven based upon our ancestry of Esau or we're going to heaven based on our ancestry of Jacob, either one, because they're legitimate sons of Isaac. But then God says, nah, the younger one, not according to your tradition, is now going to serve the older. You will come out of him. And they're like, well, wait a second. Does that mean we're not saved if we're descendants of Esau? And we read this in Malachi 1, 1 through 4 burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. So Malachi says, and he quotes that. So now we're back in the Old Testament, what Paul would have had. I have loved you, says the Lord. But remember, he said to Israel, not, a, not Israel, the person, the nation. He says, I loved you, says the Lord. And then he's, Israel says back, but God says, but yet you say, in what way have you loved us, God? Yet, and then God responds, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau has hated. He's telling the nation of Israel, no, I have loved you. Don't you remember when I said that? He's talking about the nations, not two babies. I laid waste in his mountains, Esau. Edom has said, we will return and build mighty cities. And God said, yeah, you can build them, but I'm going to tear them all down. They shall be called a territory of wickedness. He's talking about the nations. And Paul's figuring this out. Paul says in Romans 9, 21, does not the potter, because the Israelites say, well, wait a second, wait a second. I thought we're chosen because we followed the law. I thought we go to heaven because we followed the law. Paul's like, no, it's Jesus. Wait a second. I thought I go to heaven because I'm a son of Israel or I'm a son of Esau. They're both from Isaac. Don't I just inherit salvation based upon my ancestry? Paul says in 921, and they're like, that would be unfair if I don't. Paul says, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Jeremiah 18.1, God said, can I not do with you, Israel, not the baby, Israel, the nation, as this, as this potter does, like clay in the hand of the potter? So are you in my hand, Israel. At the time I announced that a nation or kingdom to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, God uses the word nation three more times in those verses. And in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul is asking if the nation of Israel can be saved and if God is fair in the way he goes about treating them as a group. Are Jews saved by genealogy, Paul asks, or must Jews believe in Jesus in order to be saved? Paul argues that even though Jews are descendants of Jacob and Abraham, they do not have a free ticket because of their ancestry. They do not have a free ticket because of their works and following the law, Right? It's because of our belief upon Jesus that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that he rose again on the third day. And if you believe that in your heart, you shall be saved. And that's why Paul was in anguish. They had always looked at these physical things and Paul was like, no, you're missing the spiritual revelation of Jesus Christ is how we're saved. And he's in anguish over it. Because of their ancestry, Romans 9, 8, it says, Israel has been blessed as a people group because salvation comes from the Jews. However, individual Jews are saved, saved the same way Gentiles are by having faith in Jesus Christ. My interpretation is Paul is referring here to predestination of nations and not predestinations of individual people in the womb. Calvin, I was a Calvinist. I'm not going to go into all that. That's for a whole other sermon. And I do not want to break my record for the longest sermon again in this church. But... I see in the Bible 100% sovereignty of God in control of everything. But I also see in the Bible 100% the free will of man being exercised. I believe Jesus went to the cross for universal atonement for anyone who calls on his name to be saved, but it has to be individually accepted. 
I believe we do have destinies, but at the same time, there's a participation in that destiny to choose the right destination. And Esau did not, and he didn't repent for it, and he did not value what God had given to him. So church, I, I named this message, don't mistreat or take advantage of people. Do what's right. So in that being said, we're going to go, not yet, we're going to do communion. We're going to invite the worship team up. But before that, I want to ask anyone, we are going to take communion. Communion is for believers that call upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. They believe he's the son of God and God himself. Is there anyone in here who has not valued what God has given you, who has been in opposition to God year after year after year, like the Edomites, and who finally says, you know what, I want to surrender and build a relationship with the Christ. I want to know God in his favor and not in his opposition. Is there anyone here who has not valued what God has given them and now they want to value the things God has given them? And I would like you to say a prayer with me and give your life to the Lord. Is there anyone here, just raise your hand, who would like to give their life to the Lord today? Okay, amen. Yeah, if the worship team can come up, we'll go ahead and close in prayer. And we're going to pass out the elements um, as they're doing the worship song. So we can have the people ready to pass out um, the elements for communion. Hold the elements. We're going to go through what communion is, and then we're going to partake in them together. Amen? <laughs>